Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks Thanks be to to God, who gives us victory, the victory, the victory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And welcome back into the Living Victory Podcast. My name is Christian Conway, as always, joined by my two main men, Max Keen and Jonathan Krause. But today, we have another guy. We have a special guy, a special visitor with us, uh, special in many ways, special to me, special to a lot of other people in this world. Uh, but I'm going to introduce him today. His name is Adam Bossom. He's, he's been an awesome mentor in my life. He has really come, come into my life at a, at a great point and just kind of given me the, the boost and the encouragement that I needed to jump to the next level or to maybe not all the way to the next level, but to, to start progressing to those next levels of my faith. It's been a real encouragement having him in my life, and I'm really excited to have him on the podcast today so you guys can hear all the great wisdom that he has. How are you doing today, Adam? Doing really well, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on, and it's, uh, it's a blessing to be here and talking with you guys. Yeah, we're super thrilled to have you. Um, and so normally in our interviews, we would um, ask for a testimony, a short testimony. So if you wouldn't, or yeah, if you wouldn't mind sharing your testimony, and um, if you don't share your testimony, you can have Christian punch you or something. <laughs> oh, it's, it's completely fine. I'd, uh, I'd be glad with sharing it. So uh, um, my father uh, was and is a pastor. And so I grew up in a, a really good Christian uh, family. Um, very, very thankful to say that like, I was discipled extremely, extremely well by my father. Uh, and I'm still reaping the benefits uh, of, of his discipleship today. Um, unfortunately, that like my heart, Romans 1, Romans 3, Romans 5, like was lost in sin and wanted absolutely nothing to do with my father, with the church, with wisdom or uh, anything to do with God. Uh, I was just, hey, I, I, I want what I want. Uh, I want to reject what God tells me is right. I reject his ordinances, uh, his invisible attributes. That is what has been made cl- uh, evidently clear in my life. Uh, I wanted nothing to do with it. And so up until about around the age of 15 or 16, uh, I wanted nothing to do with Christ. I wanted nothing to do with my family. Um, and then through some very unfortunate circumstances, uh, my birth mother abandoned the family. Uh, my father had to step down uh, as pastor. Um, I had a, uh, my sister, uh, Jessica, who I love to pieces, um, had special needs. She started going through a lot of, uh, mental and physical, um, ailments. Um, and really like everything in my life fell apart in about five or six months, like went from having a family that was making six figures. And my dad was a well-respected pastor to, uh, people in my own school, people in my own town, like wouldn't even look at us. And, uh, everything was, that was going on was put upon myself and my father. Um, wrongly so. And um, yeah, th- through that, I just realized, Lord, like there's nothing I can do in this life. Uh, all the plans I had for after high school completely went away. I ended up working three part-time jobs right out of high school, um, making minimum wage. And I-, I literally had no way of making anything out of my life. And it was out of that, like the Lord saved me just like from Lord, I want nothing to do with you. I know you, but I do not need you to Lord. I I. I don't even know where I'm going to go tomorrow for work or how we, how I am going to pay the bills or put anything together in my life. And Lord, um, I know I have been taught well, and now I need to come in with full faith, say, Lord, I, my Abba Father, I, I, on bended knee, I, I beg that you give me guidance and I beg that uh, my life give glory to you. And out of that, like the, the Lord saved me. Um, I'm so thankful to say that the Lord decreed through that, that I would be brought to salvation. And out of that, um, the Lord sent me to Arizona State. I went there, um, got a construction engineering degree, and then uh, on in career after that, like the, the Lord has done nothing, but in every single moment proved that his grace is, is far, far, uh, far more than sufficient for every trial and uh, for every struggle that goes on. And it's been an absolute blessing. And I, I look back at the trials that the Lord has put me through, and uh, I can honestly say I'm thankful for those trials. Uh, before those trials, I was a spoiled brat. And still today, I see many portions of my heart that are spoiled, that are wicked, uh, that are depraved, that still need sanctification. And that's how the Lord beats those out of you. That's how the Lord purifies that out of you is through trials. Um, and that that would quickly be, be, a, be a story of my testimony. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, really appreciate the honesty. Um, man, it's so true that God uh, unfortunately has to put some difficult things in our path sometimes for us to get it in our thick schools that we need to 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 start following him better in, in those areas. And um, man, it's it's really convicting to hear uh, testimonies like that because for me personally, I just, I haven't had anything 
well, I mean, of course, life has had its more than enough challenges, but I haven't had anything blow up in terms of life, um, in terms of like my family, my family's still together. And I feel so blessed for that every day. Um, and it's like, I'm so thankful for all the blessings that God has in my life, but it does make me fearful um, that, that, you know, one of these days a storm is going to come in and it's going to hit me and um, I'm, we're going to have some lightning and some thunder around here. Um, but you know, it's, it's times like these that we can re prepare for those harder times that we can really dig deep into God's word and, and prayer and, um, really prepare ourselves so that when that time comes that we don't run away from God, but we run to him. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that and, and your testimony. So we're going to be going through the book of Titus today. And the book of Titus is, is a book that Adam has, has studied multiple times and he's actually done, um, he's taught it multiple times as well. And Christian has been a part of that, um, in Adam's life. So, Adam, why don't we start off with a just an overview of, of Titus, just kind of like what's going on in the book um, and uh, just like a few overarching points. And then we'll start jumping into to some of the more nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. So the book of Titus, we have three chapter, chapters and like very roughly breaking up uh, chapter one or say all the entire book of like, hey, what does a godly church look like? And then each of the three chapters is going to be discussing a different facet of that godly church. Uh, chapter one predominantly is going to be like, what do the elders inside the church look like? Um, and as, as we'll come to discuss, like the elders are going to be the core of that church. If I want change to happen inside the church, where do I start? I start with the elder body. Um, I don't start with worship. I don't start with kids ministries. I don't start with painting the parking lot. Um, I start with the elder board and I reform and I overhaul the elder board and then they are responsible for propagating that change. Um, I know the photo has gone on to you guys for anyone who's listening. I think you guys said on the Instagram, uh, a little photo is going to go up of something called the upside down Y. Uh, the upside down Y is going to go into that a little bit more. Um, we, we can discuss that at, at, a, at a later time. Um, and then chapter two is going to be like, hey, now, what do the individuals inside the church, what do older men, what do older women, what do younger women, what do younger men, and then what do slaves look like inside the church? What should their life look like? And then, hey, like what, um, out of all the things that have been told to me in Titus 1 and then the first half of Titus 2, we're going to say some pretty hard things. Uh, we're going to say, hey, w when, there is a when there is a rebellious or factious man, after a first or second confrontation, you disregard him. That is not, oh, you go sit in the corner. That is you are removed from the church. You push him out. That's a, that's a pretty hard thing to say. Why can we be told that? Titus 2.12, because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to do these things and to deny ungodliness. And then chapter three is going to say, now these believers, what does their life look like outside of the church? And why is that? And that's going to rest upon what Christ has done for me in the cross. So I would say that's a that's about the most concise overview of Titus uh, 1 through 3 that, that I could give you there. Uh, are you guys okay if I start? with going into it or do you guys have any questions or comments before Here, that i'm gonna just intro it i'm gonna kind of give them a, a frame for chapter one and yeah, then we can head that, do you guys have fine. anything to say before we go into chapter one? Oh, i was just gonna ask like what got you into titus like why this specific book oh man so shout out to grace bible church in um phoenix arizona if anyone is listening to this in the phoenix area and you are not going to grace bible church you should head there right now uh and they have a uh, they had an elder his name was uh, Scott Maxwell. Um, I'll be honest, it is my favorite teacher, my favorite pastor that I've ever listened to. And I say that as my father being a pastor, and I have said that to him. Um, absolutely phenomenal. And, and while I was there, he went through the book of Titus, and I think I was a sophomore in college, and this book absolutely changed my life. Um, and I just uh, still, so to this day, what was that, maybe six, seven years ago, I'm still going through this book, and I'm still think, seeing things to glean and as I see Titus and I see Romans and I see Hebrews, and I just see other these pillars of books in the New Testament. I think Titus is such a good stepping point for teaching these principles and then going and seeing them in other books and how they're applied. So before we get into it, I just kind of wanted to give you guys a, a frame of what we're going to be doing today and, and how we're going to be breaking up this book to talk about it. Because as you guys know, the title of this episode is is showing us the godly role for church. Like what role does church have in the eyes of God? How did he create it? And what for what purpose did he create it? And so chapter one, we're going to look at the godly church and what the church itself is supposed to look like. Chapter two, we're going to look at what our role as believers within the church is supposed to look like according to God's design. And then chapter three, we're going to look at how the church is called to interact with, with culture and with society around it. 
So I'm really excited for this. I think there's so many things to glean from this book of Titus and, and going through it in a men's Bible study with Adam has really been a blessing to me. And I'm excited for you guys to, to get into this. So uh, as, as <laughs> without further ado, uh, you can take it away and we can start with chapter one. Yeah. So I think the stage has to be set first that you have Titus, who's a guy in his late teens, maybe early 20s, and he is sent to the island of Crete by Paul, and he is going to an island that is known for the men being, or the people being, lazy beasts, or what is it, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, for being rebellious and being factious. And Titus, as an early 20-year-old man, is told, you are going to go there, and you are going to reform that church. You are going to bring it in line with the gospel. Oh my goodness, I, I could not imagine the pressure of that. So as we come to the very start of Titus, Titus 1 through 4, what is going to have to happen? Very, very quick, Paul is, Paul is going to make a bridge from God and who he is to Paul, to Titus, to the church in Crete. Therefore, when the church of Crete looks at Titus and says, I don't like these things that you're saying to me, I don't agree, well, I'm not saying them. Paul is saying them. And it's not Paul that's saying them. It's God. And if you have a problem with God, well, then your problem is with God. It's not with Paul or it's not with me. So that's going to be the first part we're going to go over in, in verses one through four. I'm going to jump really quick from the text to kind of just some thoughts. I'll, I'll try to reference, hey, I'm going back to a verse now. I'll, I'll try to do a little bit better in saying that. Verse one, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul, a bondservant. Well, what's the Greek word for that? That's doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. That's someone who has no will of their own, who does the will of their master only. So Paul, the one who is not doing the will of himself, but the will of God, an apostle. So that is, I am specifically called out now for this specific task. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, still in verse one, according to the standard of the faith chosen of God, so that is, what is God interested in? God is interested in saving non-believers. The faith of those chosen of God, there are some that God chooses and he gives and he brings about faith in them. Keep going in verse one. And according to the standard of the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So not only does God bring those who he has chosen to faith, he now gives them knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So he says, hey, this is who I am. That is truth. I give you knowledge about that. And now what does this knowledge of the truth do? It produces godly living. So even just there in verse one, Paul's a slave. He's not doing his own will. He's an apostle specifically called out. And God is specifically interested in taking the elect non-believer and making them the elect believer. And then once they are the believer of growing them. Uh, verse two, and what is that on the basis of? That's on the basis of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago. So why is all of that? What is all verse one pointing me to? It's pointing me towards eternal life. And that's in God who cannot lie. That's God's character is perfect. And this was promised long ago. This isn't something new. This was in decreed in eternity past, but at the proper time has been manifested, even in his word in the proclamation, which would, I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our savior. So now it's not only in eternity past was this said, this is going to happen. Now at this specific time, God has appointed me as the apostle to push this out, to show his glory. Um, now, verse four, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace to the God and father of Jesus Christ to you. So in eternity past, God has planned this and ho, this is, oh, oh, hey, like this is God's character. It can't be doubted. What is God interested in? Saving the non-believer, sanctifying the now believer, and I'm being used to do this. And guess what? Titus is now the person that I'm sending out to do that job. So that chain has been met. Now Titus is fully able to go and speak to the people in Crete. I realize that that's kind of a brief yet a little, a little verbose um, explanation of our intro here. Do you guys have any questions on, on verses one through four? Not, not really on, on the, the, I guess the bulk of what you said, I did have, I was, so for the, for the listeners out there, um, I read through Titus cause we were, I knew that we were going to be doing this podcast. Um, and so I kind of had a couple things, uh, that I wanted to ask him or Adam, uh, cause I'm kind of viewing him as the, as a little bit of the pro on Titus. Um, and I felt like it'd be good to ask him on the podcast if you got some real-time answers to this. Um, but this isn't really like a big question, but why does he say in verse 4, 
my true child in the common faith. What is common faith referred to? Yeah. So, so think about that. If I'm sitting here with Christian and I can't do something and I say, Hey, uh, Christian's going to do this, that guy from down the street that I don't really know. Uh, he's not that knowledgeable, but uh, please let him come into your house and uh, talk about things that are very personal with you. I'd say, well, why would I trust Christian? But if I'm Paul and I say, this is Titus, my true child, that is, we are knit at the soul level over this in a common faith. Well, then what do you guys knit over? It's the exact same gospel. Titus is not here to preach another gospel. He is knit at the deepest level with Paul over the singularity of this perfect gospel. So that's Paul passing the torch to Titus to go and teach in Crete. And I would say that's kind of, I would maybe say that, that that's Paul's, hey, uh, this is his stamp of approval on Titus. I see. Awesome. Thank you. Anything else, Jonathan? Uh, not in verses one through four. Let's, let's keep going. This okay. is exciting. And Hey, I would really like to say that in no way do I see myself as the expert on Titus. Uh, there are men out there that can do in a year what it's taken me eight years to be able to say. And the only thing I would just encourage you guys and encourage the listeners is there's a lot of things that are going on in life and there are a lot of questions we may have. Pick up scripture and read it and read it and read it and read it and be able to speak about it to someone else. That doesn't mean you have to stand up on, on church on Sunday morning, but every man, woman and child, but specifically I'm going to say man of God needs to be able to walk someone else through scripture like that. That is the mark of an effective God, a man of God. Um, and so it's a blessing to hear that there's one portion, there's one portion, there's three chapters in the entire Bible that I feel like I can somewhat speak to. So thank you for that. Um, are, are you guys, are you guys okay if I move on to verses, verse five? Yep. Go for it. So now what is Titus supposed to actually do in, in, in Crete? Paul is speaking now to Titus. Titus, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you may set in order what remains. Well, how does Titus set in order what remains? especially to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So if there's a church that's out of order, if there's a city that's out of order, what should be the way that that is set in order? I'm told right here, that's by the elder board. The elder board is central here. Once again, I don't go out and I don't repaint the parking lot. I'm not going to try to find this verbose evangelistic way that I'm going to go out. I'm going to bring in, I'm going to do rock shows. I'm going to change what this church does completely. No, I, I start with the elder board. Um, I scrutinize the elders. I make sure that they know the Lord, they love the Lord, and they are capable and competent and willing now to go share that gospel and to sanctify lives. That's where I start. And then everything else is an outflowing of that. Then we're going to get into verse six, sixes through nine, or it's either six through nine or six through 10 is going to be, okay, so I've been told now the elders are the center of this. What should that elder look like? In verse six, um, is going to be, what does that man's life look like inside of his household? And then verses seven through nine is going to be, what does that man's life look like inside the household of the church? Uh, Grace Bible Church also put this out, uh, another uh, hashtag repost, go to Grace Bible Church if you're in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, we measure a man first on how he shepherds his heart, then his home, and then his ministry. If a man does not want to shepherd his heart, but shepherd his home, he's a hypocrite. If the man wants to shepherd his heart, but deny his home and then be faithful in ministry, once again, that's a hypocrite. The, 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 the word of the Lord in one's life must be like an inkblot, like a pen going on a, on a piece of paper. It starts in the heart, then it bleeds out to the home, and then ministry is only getting the outpouring of what, what the Lord is doing in your heart and your home. And that's going to be what Titus 1.6 follows here through. So Titus 1.6. Namely, if any man is above reproach, so that's the overarching principle. That is a an accusation when brought does not match up with his life. That's not saying that no one's ever going to say something negative about him, but that's being said that when an accusation is brought, it does not match with his life. Verse six, that a man is above reproach. And what are ways that looks like in, in the man's household? That he is the husband of one wife, that is that is a marital or that is a spiritual and heart and emotional faithfulness to the one woman that may be his wife. That is not saying an elder has to be married. That is not saying uh, an elder has to be, have been married for a certain amount of years. That is saying if he is single, he is devoted fully to the woman that will one day be his wife, even if he does not know her yet. He is, he is devoted in spirit. If he is married, well, then he is fully devoted in every aspect of his life to her. 
continuing in verse six, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Uh, we spent an entire hour speaking on, on, on this last half of the verse, children who believe just very, very briefly. I'm going to say that is not salvation. That is children who follow the man's day by day instruction because Having children who believe is then clarified later at the end of the verse. Well, what does that mean? Children who believe or children who are faithful. That means they are not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That means they are not running for the extremes. Um, they are not rebellious. They are not ones that are leading uh, that are leading arrogant and bash or arrogant and boastful lives in the wrong direction. Um, I realize I've been speaking here for a couple minutes. Uh, I'm going to take a natural break. Do you guys have anything you'd like to say or any questions? Yes. So this this actually brings us to my first deeper question, I guess you could say. Um, so this is kind of really my, I've read through Titus before, but I haven't really, really read Titus before, if we're being honest. Um, and looking at this passage, um, I can see where a lot of like the church that I grew up in, where they got a lot of their principles for elders, like they get a lot of it from this passage, right? But uh, let's say that you're an elder in a church, and one of your kids starts partaking in some of these things that are mentioned in the passage. Do you step down as an elder because your family, your household is no longer in order? What does that process look like? So quick, quickly with my testimony, um, my father stepped down from ministry because my birth mother was excommunicated from the church. So yes, um, I do very much believe that is in line with scripture. I think first, I'm blanking right now, either first Timothy or second Timothy, that if the household is not in good order, then that man needs to step down. Um, once again, there can be a father, there can be a husband, there can be an elder that shepherds his kids perfectly. But if God has not given the grace of salvation to that child, that child might need a little bit more attention and to not be rebellious, to be brought in line, to be brought in order, might need a little bit more consistent and diligent shepherding. Um, and for a man to say, hey, I have to step out of ministry to give more time to my family. Yeah, like that, that, that is something I think that not enough churches are okay with, that we see the elder board as something, when I get to the elder board, I'm tenured on the elder board. No, like if my life, if I'm proven to be above reproach, but the Lord is saying you need to spend more time shepherding in this area, I see that as something that should happen. Um, once again, I do not want to use my personal experiences and say that's biblical truth. Uh, biblical truth needs to define my experiences. But with my family, my father has been cleared to go back on the elder board. I have seen other elders that I deeply, deeply respect and I would say are completely in line with Titus 1. Uh, I've seen them step down for periods or short periods or long periods of time for certain things to hop up in their life. So I apologize. I need to work on giving a little bit more succinct answers. But yes, I believe an elder can step down. I believe an elder can step down for his faults, but also other things that are just happening in life that he needs to be diligent and shepherd in. As we come to now verse seven, so we've talked about what the man of God must look like in, ha in his household. Now we're going to look, look at what he is in the larger household. That is the household of the church. For the overseer, once again, see that in verse five we had the elder. Now we're not talking about a different man when we come to the when we come to the overseer. I am not going to get into that. If you guys want offline, uh, there are different Greek words for that. I believe we have presbyteros. I think is the elder, and I'm blanking right now on overseer steward. I have my notes in front of me, but I'm not going to look at those. Um, for the overseer now must be above reproach. Once again, he has to be above reproach inside the household. Now he has to be above reproach in the household of God. And now what does that look like? So he must be above reproach as the God's steward. Uh, the elder, the overseer, and the steward is all the same man, but that's three different looks at what he must be. Uh, I believe that the elder uh, in the Greek was, that's an older respected man. The overseer, that was the word used for a pagan god or a pagan priest that would watch over the people diligently and he would he would be the all-seeing eye. That's the idea of the overseer, that not that he's supposed to be like micromanaging the people's lives, but he is to look over his shepherd's life. And then the steward, that's the idea of the slave that when the master left the household, he was in full charge of the house, but yet when the master returned, he would give a full account to his master. So the elder is supposed to be an older revered man who watches over his flock that will give an account for his flock one day to the Lord. 
Verse seven, what does the overseer and steward's life inside the church look like? He's not self-willed, so it's not what he wants. It's what is best for the church and what glorifies the Lord. He's not quick-tempered. He is not one to get emotionally extreme in a quick manner. He is not addicted to wine. That is, he should not be continually along wine. Uh, I would not say that he can never drink. That is, it should not be a continual habit in his life that he is along alcohol or anything that inebriates or that dulls his senses. Um, he is not pugnacious. He will not want to resolve conflict with violence. He is not fond of sordid gain. It is He does not want to amass money in an illegal or not even an illegal way, but an ill willed way that would take away from the glory of the Lord, that would ruin his reputation and his ability to speak into people's lives. So we have all these things that he can't be. Uh, and many times in the scripture we want to look at, God tells us what we should not be, but he's not just going to say, hey, don't go murder people. He's going to say at the same time, don't do this, but instead do this. Verse eight, but he should be hospitable. That is literally a stranger lover. That is one who loves those who God has placed in his life. He is loving what is good. He is sensible. We're going to see the word sensible a lot of times in Titus. If you guys are tracking along at home, take the word sensible and just underline it, highlight it, do everything you can every single time you see it in this book. Uh, sensible is going to be one that is not easily pushed to the edge, but wants to be temperate, moderate. It says, what does scripture say about this? And how much emotion does scripture give? That's how much I want to give. Once again, it's not I impose on life or I impose on scripture, but scripture molds me and it tells me how I should live and how I should act. So he's supposed to be hospitable, loving what is good. Middle of verse eight, sensible, just and devout. Just and devout is going to be, hey, on our vertical scale, I am, I am, um, oh, I'm thinking, I'm skipping the word here. I am devoted to what is, well, I can't use the word devoted. devoted. Yeah, I'm devoted to what is good on the vertical scale and then devout on the horizontal scale. I'm going to be devoted to what is good. So just devout. And what do we end up here with? We end with self-controlled. We started that he cannot be self-willed and he must be self-controlled. What are we told about the man inside the church? The greatest harm that's going to come to that man and the greatest threat to his ministry is going to be himself. Um, that's why we have to bookend with you need to not be self-willed and you need to be self-controlled. Uh, I feel like that's another natural break. Do you guys have any comments or questions? I had a, a quick one, yeah. Um I may be wrong in this, but did at the time, did they have like pastors in their staff or was it just elders who taught the church? So once again, I think if we listen to the entire audio that Scott uh, Maxwell goes through here in Titus, uh, he would say, hey, Grace Bible Church has eight elders. Uh, how many pastors do they have? Eight. How many overseers do they have? Eight. How many stewards? Eight. How many shepherds? Eight. So I would say on a staff of elder boards, Every single man of God on that elder board needs to be able to equip or needs to be equipped to share the word. Um, Christian and I talked a little bit more in depth about this in our in our Titus um, men's study. But what is the defining mark of a man of God, specifically an elder? It is that he is able to exegete the word of God. He is able to knowledgeably speak and apply that to his life and to the people's lives around him. So. Are there pastors? Are there elders? I would smacks. I would see those as pretty close to one and the same. But given even on that elder board, you're probably going to have one man who went to seminary um, that is well taught, and he's going to do the vast majority of the teaching from the Greek and from the Hebrew. But then every other elder should be pretty qualified to teach from the English. What is or who is God, and what does my life have to look like because of that? But does that answer your question? Yeah. Yep. That works. Anybody have anything else before I go on to verse nine? So, so far, quick recap. I know, guys, we've spent uh, so much time. We've gone through four verses. Verse five, what is his command? Set, set in order what remains. How is that done? That's by appointing elders. Verse six, what does his life look like inside of his house? Verses seven through eight, what does his house look like in the body of believers? And then verse nine, what is his duty? He must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. So that is what the Lord has shown us through the Old Testament, through Christ coming in his life, death, and resurrection. And then the, the uh, 
the epistles, the gospels, any word that has been given now to us, what he teaches must be in accordance with that. He's not going to tell me, hey, guess what? Uh, Jesus isn't the only way to Christ. Now I can go through ABC one, two, three. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to hold fast to the faithful word. Um, and how does he hold fast? He exhorts in sound doctrine and refutes those who contradict. So gentlemen, the mark of a godly man, the mark of the elder is that when the chips are on the table, he refutes those who contradict. That can be, hey, Max, hey, Jonathan, hey, Christian, uh, you guys are saying this, but I, I see this in scripture. Can we talk about that? Or as we see even up to, or as we see later in the book, that could be as much as you are a rebellious and factious man. I have told you once to be quiet. I am telling you twice to be quiet. And if I have to tell you, like after a second warning, you are going to be removed from the church. You are no longer to, will you are no longer allowed to be here. You are no longer allowed to do ministry. You are no longer allowed to speak. And the man of God has to be willing to do all of that with a heart attitude of love and shepherding for the sheep. And at the same time, he needs to not only be able to tell people to be quiet when they do what's wrong, he has to be able to take the word of God and apply that to people's lives and what is good, what is faithful, what is literally uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. It is God in paper form. To take that and to take God and to implant that in people's hearts and produce fruit, that's what an elder has to be able to do. And then once again, I would ask the young men, do you know your Bible well enough to do that? Um, and then do you have, well, just simply say in the most blunt way, do you have the cojones to do that at the hardest times? Um, that's what Titus 1, 1 through 9 is getting us to real quick. Any questions on that? I don't have a question, but I just have a, a, a illustration for this example. And I think when a lot of people hear this, that you have to sharply rebuke people who come in the church and start contradicting what scripture says, People often think, man, that sounds a little harsh. Shouldn't people be welcome in the church? And shouldn't you, should, shouldn't you be loving and accepting to allow people to come into the church? And I would agree with the fact that you should be loving and accepting to allow people to come into the church. But as Adam was saying, and, and as he's pointing out in the book, this, this is dealing with people who come in the church and start teaching things that stray from scripture. And as a pastor, as an overseer, as an elder, those, those roles all really mean shepherd. You're a shepherd of the sheep. And your job as a shepherd is to make sure that there's nothing putting your sheep in danger. And you might allow somebody else's sheep to come graze with your sheep. But as soon as the other sheep start posing a danger to your sheep or start start causing your sheep to stop following you, that's the moment when you need to start looking at those sheep and and being sharp with them and saying, hey, if you're going to come into my my pen with my sheep and you're going to come into my flock and you're going to, to pose a threat to my sheep, then I need to hold you accountable to that. And if you're not going to... to respond correctly when I do hold you accountable. And if you're not going to hold yourself to the same standard that I hold my people to and that I hold myself to and that God ultimately holds us to, and that is scripture, then you're not going to to be welcome in my church anymore. And it, it sounds harsh and it sounds sharp, but really when you think of it, if a pastor or elder's job is to make sure that he is shepherding the hearts and souls of the people within his church, then if somebody comes into that church and starts preaching things that are in contradiction to what the Bible says, he has no choice but to be sharp with that person. And if that person does not listen to his corrections and continues in what they're doing, he has no choice but to kick that person out and make sure that that, that person is no longer affecting his sheep in a negative way. I, I agree with that so much, Christian. And think about that, that in verses seven and eight, we were told a man must not be pugnacious. That means he does not want to fight and he's not quick tempered. That even when aggravated, think, think about like a hornet's nest. When I poke at a hornet's nest, that hornet's nest is going to respond pretty quickly. Um, but the man of God is not quick tempered. He can be poked at multiple times and he will not wrongly lash back out. Um, but yet that same man who's patient, loving, devout, um, just, he then has to be able to wield the word of God and wield his own heart and wield his own words to protect the sheep. And if you still think that's harsh, I, I would ask, well, okay, if, I, if I'm a husband and I wake up in the middle of the night, it's uh, 1 a.m. and it's pitch black, and uh, I see a man standing inside my house with a weapon. What action is too severe to take? Well, I don't want to offend that man's feelings. Like, no, I, I'm going to act very abruptly, very harshly, um, and we're going to bring this to a resolution very, very quickly. Um, that's loving. That is loving to protect my family. Um, if I have my best friends over for Sunday brunch and we're discussing um, we're discussing Christ and what he's doing in our lives, uh, for me to take those same actions as I would at 1 a.m. in the morning, um, that would be pretty unwise. That would be pretty unloving. 
um, but the situation dictates. And once again, it's not what my emotions think the situation dictates. It's, is God's word being truly proclaimed? Are the sheep being shepherded? If yes, continue doing it. If no, what has to happen to get us back on that track? This is definitely a difficult thing in in many churches, I would say, because nobody wants to step on anybody else's toes. Um, and I think that's... Um, that's somewhat natural for, for us as, you know, humans that we want to, um, you know, we want to take that love your neighbor as yourself kind of verse, uh, all the way to the, to the very end. But, um, make sure that, that if, you know, if you're a person and you're in a situation and it's calling for confrontation and, and the Bible is being contradicted and sound doctrine is not being taught, um, it's, it is, I would definitely say that it's the duty of, of, I mean, based on the scriptures, definitely the duty of the elders to address that. Right. And, and, you know, keep in mind here that there are two chances given to the person that is, that is teaching non-sound doctrine, right? There is the tell them once, tell them twice, and then remove them from the church. So this isn't like a, Hey, you messed up once you're out of the church kind of thing. This is a, Hey, this is what's going on, and this is what we disagree with. We believe that this contradicts God's word. This contradicts the the teaching that should be happening from God's word, and we need this to be addressed, and we need this to change, right? And if it still doesn't change to the point where it's you know it's to a point where they don't need to worry about it anymore or anything like that, then they address it again. And if it's still a problem, then third time's a charm. Then we need to uh, address removing this person from the church. This is a similar concept to. Um, the scripture that talks about a brother being in sin, that you go to them, um, you know, by yourself and then you go to them with a brother. And if they still don't repent from this sin that you believe is, is you know, in deprecation to their faith, then you go to the church and you bring it to the church and you basically open up um, to to the church in that way. So scripture is, is, is very clear that we need to be serious about this, but this isn't a one and done kind of thing. This isn't a, hey, I messed up and I'm officially being, uh, you know, cut off for it. Um, sometimes I would even say that, that I've, this has even happened in my church where somebody has actually taught something incorrectly and it wasn't because they were trying to, or they were, you know, trying to teach non-sound doctrine, but, um, it was something that they were just misinformed about. They had a viewpoint that was somewhat skewed that maybe they had been taught, uh, in the past. And after it was addressed, and the, the church addressed it and they said, hey, this is actually goes against what we believe and we believe that scripture says. And then it was remedied. You know, there were no problems anymore. Um, so I, I definitely think that, that you know, someone being kicked out of the church is like a pretty extreme scenario where, where that person is actually someone that's, that's really causing mischief um, uh, on a purposeful level. Um, so definitely, you know, keep that in mind when, when thinking about this. I, I know I, I said this at the beginning when I started talking, but uh, everybody wants to, especially these days, to not hurt anybody's feelings. And, and um, but, you know, God's word is obviously above our emotions and it's above our, our understanding. And we make sure that we need to stick to that as, as um, closely as possible. A- amen to that, Jonathan. I know I'm going to pick at something you said at, at the beginning. Um, you talked about love. And I would say, well, love is only as good as what it's centered on. Uh, If I say, Jonathan, Max, Christian, whoever's listening, I love you. Um, But I'm upfront and honest. And I only love you as much as you can do good for me and as you make me happy. Uh, Well, then guess what? That love is only going to go as deep as you make me happy. And as soon as you do something I don't like, well, that love is gone. Well, so you'd say, well, that's not a very good love. Even in the church, uh, there there are words that we use. And I think it's very important that we slow down and we say, hey, can you please define that word? Uh, can you give me a little bit more on that? Can you can you draw that out and show me where from scripture we can have some points on that? I'd say, yeah, love has to be centered around truth. And what is truth? God, Truth is who God is. Um, that is who he is, how he has revealed himself, and what my life must be now in light of who God is. Um, that's what it has to be centered on. And if I say, hey, Jonathan, hey, Max, Hey, Christian, hey, whoever's listening to this, uh, I love you and with a godly love, then guess what? If you're walking in the ways of God, my love for you is going to be nothing but encouragement, nothing of brother, sister, you are doing so well. Like, keep being faithful, keep being bold. Um, but if you're, if I tell you I love you as a godly brother and your life is 100, 180 degrees in the exact opposite way of who Christ is, then there's going to have to be a little bit some harsh words. 
uh, well, Adam, your, your words are harsh. You don't love me. Well, no, I'm not saying these words that are, I'm not saying these harsh words to you because I want to be seen as great. I truly love you, which means if I love you and my love is centered around truth, that means I want your life to be centered in truth. And as your life is first strays further and further away from truth, I'm going to have to use more and more extreme and harsh words to bring that back. Um, once again, that's not every single situation is harsh, harsh, but we have to be willing and capable to do that. Uh, do, you, do you guys have any thoughts on uh, on that topic? Sounds good. So now we're going to be dealing with specifically what does it mean that he has to refute those who contradict. Um, I have this highlighted. I'm going to give you the most succinct summary I can with nothing but words for the text. Verse 10, there are many rebellious men. Verse 11, what are they doing? They are upsetting whole families. Verse 13, what does the elder have to do? Reprove them severely. Um, I'll repeat that. Verse 10, there are many rebellious men. Verse 11, these rebellious men are upsetting whole families. Verse 13, the elder, reprove them severely. That's that's going to be the quickest outline we can get of this. Verse 10, there are many rebellious men. What does a rebellious man do? He's an empty talker. That is, there is no biblical depth. There is no apparition even of God in his words. Um, they are deceiving. Their words are not true. They are contradictory to the truth. Where do these men come? Especially of the circumcision. A lot of these men are Jews. Uh, that's not all of them were, but a lot of them came from came from the Jewish background. Uh, what, what, what must happen? They must be silenced. Why? Because are they, they are upsetting whole families. That is, there were multiple of these men who had the platform to walk into households, to walk to wives, to kids, and to tell them, what is not true about God. Guys, the idea or the word for upsetting families, that's to take a table and turn it over or to turn it on its side. My question for you would be, what good is a table that is laid on its side? It is nothing. And in that same way, these men, these empty talkers and deceivers were going into families and making their these families worthless for good deeds. Um, that is not something that can be happen, happening in the church. What needs to happen? The elder board needs to do needs to be faithful. Um, going back to verse eleven, these men must be silenced because they are turning or they are upending entire families. How are they doing that? They're teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Guys, right here, right here is the hard attitude. What is at the heart of what these men are teaching? They teach whatever they want that profits them for sordid gain. That's the exact thing the elder should not be. They will say whatever they need to say so that they progress, either with money, in stature, in elevation, in reputation. They will do whatever that takes. Verse 12, one of themselves. So now, sorry, I should have said this before. Now, verse 12, um, Paul is now going to refer back to an old Cretan prophet. That would be a non-biblical prophet. I think his name was Epimenides. I, I, could, be, I could be wrong on that. Um, someone feel free to fact check me and tell me uh, I'm a dummy. Um, Epimenides, hundreds of years before the book of Titus, said, hey, uh, nobody likes the Cretans. Who are Cretans? Verse 13 or verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul is now referring to someone outside of the church to say, hey, these are the men that are on your island. Why are you giving them a, a room in your church? And Paul not only says, this is what this person says, verse 13, he says, this testimony is true. Like these men are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Guys, that's not someone I want to have around my family. That's not someone that should even be around me. Um, verse 13, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely. And guys, we've talked about, there, 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 there's a lot of harsh words that need to be said. What is the heart attitude behind these, heart, these harsh words? At the end of chapter th or verse 13, so that they may be sound in faith. Jonathan, Max, Christian, anyone listening, if someone has to say something harsh to you, if you have to say someone harsh to someone else, the end goal for that should be restoration towards Christ. We are not brutal. We are not harsh for harshness sakes. We are only harsh when that is what's needed to bring the non-believer or even to bring the believer back to Christ. Um, verse 13, we reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. What is that? That, that means there's a lot of things in society, in, in secular world, in culture that's going to tell you this and that and this and that and listen to all these things. We deny those. We do not listen to those. We listen to Christ. 
who he is shown on the cross and through the and through uh, the gospel and through scripture, and that's what sets our marching orders. Verse fifteen: To the pure, all things are pure; but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But their mind and conscience, conscience are are defiled. That's not telling us that the man of God can do whatever he he wants. That's telling us to this man of God, he's going to do whatever it takes to bring himself and to bring the others around him to to the foot of the cross. But to those who are defiled, nothing is pure, but both their mind and conscience are already defiled. Why am I listening to a man who's, whose conscience is already defiled? Verse 16, tell me more about these defiled men. Like, How do I identify a defiled man? He professes to know God, but by his deeds, he denies him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Um, men. Every person on this earth denies something. We either deny God or we deny the world. And what are we told about these rebellious men? They profess with their mouth to know God, but their lives are, are, are in hypocrisy. It's the exact opposite way. But by their deeds, verse 16, by their deeds, they deny him. Not only do they deny God, let's talk about what their lives look like. It is detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Um, guys, that's the man who has to be severely rebuked. Um, I'll pop that back over to you guys for questions and comments. Yeah, I did have one. And I think that this is an important thing to focus on is what you just read at the beginning of verse 16. It says they profess to know God. And I think that that is a, a big problem that we run into in the church is the people who are, we're calling to, or the people who, uh, Paul is calling to be rebuked within the church by the elders are not people who walk in and say, I'm going to teach something anti-biblical, let me do it or else. They're people who walk in and they wear sheep's clothing. They look like a member of the church. They talk about how they love God and how they want to glorify him. But the important thing is, is that they deny him by their works, by the things that they teach and the things that they do in their life. That is how you can tell that although they profess to know God, they don't actually know him. They don't actually love him in the way he calls us to know him and love him. And so my question to you, Adam, would be, when we're in the church, how can we differentiate between the people who profess to know God and truly do know and love him and the people who profess to know God, but their works and the things that they're saying don't necessarily line up? How do we tell if the person's actions don't line up because they don't actually know God or the person's actions don't line up maybe just because they make some different decisions than us that are still biblical and scriptural? That's a, that's a great question, Christian. And first, I need to say that Guys, this mandates that the man of God, the elder, be competent. When it comes to the things of God, he needs to be knowledgeable. And if he can't give an immediate answer, he needs to be able to say, hey, you give me a couple minutes, I'm going to come back with a pretty solid answer from Scripture. But at that same time, that, that man is not called to be a monk. He's not called to be a quietist. He, he doesn't sit in his ivory tower alone and only, to, only people approach him on Sunday morning. That man has to be involved at an intricate and deep and loving, we'll say even a hospitable level, with the people in his church. Those people need to know him and he needs to know their lives. And that's where he knows their lives of this is what they profess. This is how they live. Um, and I'm blanking a little bit on your question, but it was, how do we, how do we know to differentiate of this is something that needs to be refuted and this is something that needs to be discussed? Yes. Often within the church, we see people making decisions that we probably wouldn't make in our own lives. But that's not to say that those decisions are necessarily against God's calling for our yeah. lives or anti-biblical. How do we tell whether we, we see somebody who's making different decisions than us? How do we tell whether those decisions are showing that they deny God by their works, as it says here in Titus, or that they're simply making decisions that we may not make, but they're not necessarily against the Bible? Yeah, I would say what, what core common gospel principle are they denying? Um, and if I can't point to one, then I'm going to hold that a little bit softer. Um, if Max, Jonathan, or Christian is going around and they're telling people, hey, there's a, a way other than Christ to be saved, we're going to have a pretty pretty abrupt conversation on that one. Um, if Jonathan, Max, or Christian is saying, hey, I'm okay wearing shorts that are slightly above my knees, and one of the other guys says, nope, you can't do that, that, that that's not a biblical thing, um, we're stepping away from a gospel main principle. We're talking a little bit more of application and wisdom now. Um, I'm going to hold those things a lot looser. Um, given now, there are even in those areas of wisdom, uh, someone saying, I'm going to have uh, do copious amounts of drugs and uh, I'm going to live a unloving life. Well, I would say even though uh, the, the Bible might not exactly say, hey, thou shall not take ecstasy. Uh, if someone is continually 
um, having a life that is full of drugs, then yeah, I, I can make some pretty strong biblical connections of this is what scripture says my life should look like. This is what your life does not look like. Um, to sum that up, I, I could have just given a much more brief answer. The more their life contrasts with specific scripture, the more upfront I'm going to be about it. Um, the more opinion-based it is, the more it's, hey, can we just talk about this? Like I have these thoughts or maybe that doesn't even warrant a conversation. And that's just the grace of God working in that individual's life. Uh, do you guys have anything more on that? Good to go. Wow, that was a lot. We uh, we came into this, and I bet you guys didn't expect to get almost an hour's worth of audio just on Titus chapter 1. But in this episode, we've looked at Titus chapter 1, and we've understood what a godly church looks like, what the, the structure at the center of a godly church looks like, and especially the elder board that sits at the center of that church. Not only what the requirements and the responsibility, or the requirements uh, to become an elder are, but especially what the responsibilities of an elder within the church are and how they can faithfully carry out their task according to the design that God has made for them. Next week's episode, we're going to look at Titus chapters 2 and 3. And in, in chapter 2, we're going to learn what a Christian's... We're going to learn what a believer's role within the church looks like and how we as believers can live out faithfully our duty in the church according to God's design for us. And then chapter 3, we're going to learn what the godly role of a church within society and within culture looks like and how God's church can faithfully interact with the culture and the society around it in a way that represents God well. So we thank you so much for coming on this week's episode, Adam. It's, it's really been a blessing, and I can't wait to see you again next week and talk about ch Titus chapters 2 and 3. I've gotten a lot out of this conversation, and I hope that our listeners have also gotten a lot out of it. So thanks for coming on this week with us. Hey, guys. It's, uh, it's been a blessing. Thank you guys for having me on. And you guys know the deal. As always, if you want to support us, if you want to come, come by our side and help us get this gospel message out, there are a few ways that you can do that. There's a few ways that you can help us do that. The first is really easy, is just to share this episode with somebody. If you know somebody who's who's curious about what the, the role of an elder within the church is or what a godly church should look like, then you can share this episode with them. Or if, or if there's any other episodes that you've listened to of ours that could really benefit somebody in your life, then sharing that episode would really help us grow, grow our following and help more people get their eyes and ears on the gospel through this podcast. You can also leave us a rating and review on whatever podcast service you listen to. That would really help us, really help us boost up those rankings and help get more eyes and ears on this podcast. And then finally, if you're feeling really generous, you can you can give us a monetary donation. Go to livingvictorypodcast.com slash donate, and it'll take you to a PayPal link where you can send us a monetary donation. And that, that will really help us. And our promise to you is that any monetary donation you send to us, 100% of it will be fed back into the show, into advertising and making sure we help more people get their eyes and ears on the gospel through this show. And we just, we really wouldn't be able to do this without you guys. We thank you so much for, for walking by our side, for listening every week. And we really, really appreciate uh, your guys' support throughout this entire process. So we want to thank you once again for listening. And as always, love each other and shine your light.